is the house that Jack built. <laughs> you know how there is to go. <laughs> this is the malt that lay house that Jack built. This is the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. So it's going to be able to add join in with me as we go, right? This is the cow with a crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with a crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with a crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that killed the rat that ate the malt that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the priest, all shaved and shorn, that married the man all tattered and torn, that kissed the maiden all forlorn, that milked the cow with the crumpled horn, that tossed the dog, that worried the cat, that killed the rat, that ate the malt, that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the cock that crowed in the morn. Gonna go for a while still, I've still got a whole page and a half here. This is the cock that wrote the morn that worried that, that waked the priest all shaved and shorn, that married the man all tattered and torn, that kissed the maiden all forlorn, that milked the cow with a crumpled horn, that tossed the dog, that worried the cat, that killed the rat, that ate the malt, that lay in the house that Jack built. This is the farmer, so he's corn. They kept the cock that crowed in the morn, that waked the priest all shaved and shorn, that Married the man all tattered and torn, that kissed the maiden all forlorn, that milked the cow with a crumpled horn, that tossed the dog, that buried the cat, that killed the rat, that ate the mouth malt, that lay in the house that Jack built. And that's it. <laughs> it's like a totally random piece of English poetry, English rhyme, isn't it? All sorts of meanings are given to it. Some say that it's got something to do with Jesus, that Jesus is apparently Jack. And uh, the house that he builds is the church. Jack is the carpenter and he builds it. I'm not quite sure what the, the dog and the rat have got to do with that. Um, and generally, it's understood to just mean a shoddy building that's wobbly and will fall apart. But there, there's the house that Jack built. Although I've also seen it mean the exact opposite to see something fantastic and super fancy and say, oh, that's the house that Jack built. Um, so it's a little bit of a confusing, no one really actually knows what it means. This morning, we're going to talk about that. But we will talk about the wall that Jack built, and John, and Fred, and Baruch, and a whole bunch of others. So if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning, and it will appear on the screen. I should read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to, um, because it gets very repetitive and says much the same thing, but we will make random comments uh, about the chapter through the course of the morning. Eliashib. The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it, set its walls in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, the son of Emri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They made 
its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, who prepared the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. Next to him, Zadok, the son of Dana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their, neighbor, their, their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana Gate was repaired by Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Bisodia. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon, and Jaden of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, the son of Arahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedeah, the son of Aramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pathmoab, repaired another section at the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan, and the residents of Zenoa, they rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Archidia, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it, put its doors and bolts and bars in place, spared a fort for those who repaired the Dung Gate. <laughs> I'm not going to read any further. It goes on about the fountain gate and the Levites who built stuff and, and the horse gate and on and on. And simply, the people of Jerusalem gathered to rebuild the walls. So, some things that happened between Nehemiah chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 3, and primarily I think that a lot of what's going on is organization. This sort of planning organization just didn't, didn't just happen automatically. Um, I suspect that Nehemiah got everyone involved. Um, and, and chapter 3 of Nehemiah, is the point of the chapter is to see that everybody in Jerusalem, and even some outside of Jerusalem, played their part in rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah chapter 3, the, point, the reason that it's there in the Bible is not so that you can go and find an unusual baby name. As many people do, I don't know if any of you did that page if you're looking in the Old Testament for odd names. Um, the point in Nehemiah 3 is that everyone got involved. And, and you can see that, right? As, as we read bits of it, and you can read further on, you'll see that it comes up again that you've got, uh, the, the job wasn't just handed over to a couple of laborers who knew how to lay bricks. Uh, all sorts of people did the work priests, and temple servants, and merchants, and rulers. Goldsmiths, perfume makers, boys and girls, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old, people from every strata of society, every part of society, they all got involved and did their work because they wanted to see the city of God rebuilt. And you remember why, in the last couple of weeks, I keep repeating this, that a city without walls is a city in ruins. And it's a place of vice and violence, a place of lawlessness and, and, and a depiction of everything that is wrong with society. A city without walls is a place where people run away from. But a city with walls becomes a place of refuge, 
becomes a place of safety, it becomes a place of welcome and security for the marginalized. It's a place of law and order. It's a place that actually forms and shapes culture and society. And the city of God, even more so in those things. The city of God, a place of refuge and a place of societal change. A place of the appropriate worship of the true God and not the false worship of the idols of comfort and control and whatever other idols they may be. And so the people both in the city and from the surrounding areas around the city recognize this need and they gather, they come together and work to see the city of God rebuilt and restored. And so I think you get it, right, that, the, that being part of the city of God is not a spectator sport. And we're part of the city of God. That's what we're building. That's, again, the whole point of Nehemiah is that this is more than just about a city 2,000 years ago. And it's certainly not about a place in the Middle East today. The city of God is where God dwells, the place where God is. And that's right here. And so the church is the city of God. The church is the place where God dwells. The church is, the, is meant to be a place of refuge and safety and welcome and community, and cultural transformation, and societal change. The church is the place, or should be the place, that, that impacts the wider world. And the point of Nehemiah 3 is that it requires every member to lay a couple of bricks. And so with that in mind, we're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, and uh, again, you know, time is going to hold us back. I wish I could read all of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 for you this morning, but I'm not going to. Just like a couple of key verses as we go, but 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says this, The body, talking about the church, talking about the city of God, the body is a unit, though it's made of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. In verse 14, the body is not made up of one part, but of many parts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is very, very clear that every person in the church is part of the church and has a function and a role to play in the church. Now to be clear, he's not saying that everyone has to have some kind of job to do on Sunday morning, because Sunday morning is happy hour, and all will do it on Sunday morning. Because he recognizes, as we do, I hope, that church is more than just about Sunday morning. That the church community is going to need to be a place of welcome and refuge, day in and day out. Not just a building that has doors open so you can come in. But that the church is going to be this place that, that presents, or this, this body of people that presents a better way to live. A better way to be human. And... If you've read 1 Corinthians 12, you'll remember the illustration that Paul uses when he says the church, and we just read it here, the church is like a body. And he says that because it's a body, not everyone can be the nose. And I know that some of you are nosy, <laughs> and a number of you feel picked on. But that doesn't mean that we're all one big nose. If, if the body was one big nose and the body sneezes, you're in trouble, right? No, so the, the body needs fingers and knees and funny, wobbly, purple bits. Um, all in order to function properly. And the point is that everyone 
has a role to play, right? That funny wobbling bit that hangs in the back of your throat. That's what I'm referring to. Um, <laughs> everybody's got a role to play in the church. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone's got something to do on a Sunday morning. But it does mean that you, as a member of the body of Christ, are serving Him and serving His kingdom, and you're laying bricks through the week as you invite people into your home, as you send someone a voice note, as you communicate the gospel to a colleague or someone at work or at school or whatever. And, and even more than that, when, you, when you're doing your job, just your normal, average, daily job, and you recognize that doing the job is about more than just earning your daily crust, but that in actuality, you doing your job well contributes in the kingdom of God and giving display to a different way of living and a different culture and a different mindset. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so the point is not, as in Nehemiah here on Corinthians, that we have paid professionals to build the wall. Everyone did it. Except if you were paying attention in Nehemiah 3, not everyone did it. Right? There was the town of Tekoa, a little village just outside Jerusalem, a couple of kilometers to the north. And this little village knew that a strong city of Jerusalem would benefit their little village. And that's the way it works. A strong economic hub will add benefit to the little villages and surrounding communities. And so the people from that community came to Jerusalem to build the walls. But the nobles didn't. The nobles stayed at home. The nobles did nothing. Maybe the work was just beneath them. They're too noble to mix Gaga. And so these leaders at Tekoa go down in church history as the guys who would not submit, as the guys who would not put their shoulder to the task at hand. Gladly, the people of Tekoa were different because it seems that they can't get enough. So we read about them in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 5. If we read the rest of the chapter, you'd have encountered them again in verse 27. Because it's like we finished this, but what can we do next? They're, they're, they're those kind of guys. We just, we want to get the job done. Because we all have a role to play. There were some who felt that they were above it all. They could just sit back and be all noble. And yet still hopefully gain the benefit of the city. But... That's not how it works. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. And each of you is part of it. Says Paul. And yes, you might well be that purple wobbly bit hanging at the back of the throat. And you're unsure of what your exact role actually is in the church and in the kingdom. But you are nonetheless part of the body of so let me make a couple of random observations from 1 Corinthians about the role that we play in the kingdom. Um, slightly different way of preaching this morning, I guess. But here's my first point out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. Number one, you're not gifted. That sounds offensive because in our modern world, everyone is special. Everyone is unique. Everyone gets a prize. Everyone gets a certificate. And everyone... I'm kind of overstating it, but bear with me. Here's what I mean. In chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says this, To each one, manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Paul says that the gifts are given 
for the common good. So it's not the case that I have a spiritual gift, isn't that wonderful? Look at the gifts that I have. But rather that the church is giving gifts to the church. I just happen to be the vessel that he's using. And I hope you understand why that's helpful to view spiritual gifts in that way. See, back in, back in the day when I was a lot younger, um, and when it was very popular to do this, and it still is in some circles, it was very popular to do spiritual gifts tests to discover what gift you might have. And those, those spiritual gifts tests tended to be along the lines of, do you enjoy organizing color-coded bits of paper or making jokes in front of people? And if the answer is A, you have the gift of administration. Amazing. Who would have thought? And you may remember, if you were part of those kind of churches, how it went. Um, you would fill in one of these spiritual gifts questionnaires, and at the end of it, you'd be able to go, I have the gift of, insert whatever significant gift it is that you might have. I have the gift of prophecy. I have the gift of leadership. You know, leadership. That was the word that was used. And then there were others, of course, who, in a slightly shy and embarrassed voice, would go, I have the gift of being nice. You may detect in this that I received the gift of cynicism. I'm going to leave that as my spiritual gift, or maybe even the gift of sarcasm, I don't know. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is that oftentimes when you walk, work through these kind of spiritual gift things and talk to people about spiritual gifts, what ends up happening is it becomes this, under this area of pride, look at the wonderful gift I have of spiritual leadership development, aren't I great? Or you end up in a little bit of depression because Mountain moving, miraculous faith, and instead I've got the gift of teaspoon arranging. Right. And so you end up getting looked down upon because you've got the inferior, so called inferior gift. But if you stop looking at it in light of what gift I have, and what gift God has given to me, and what gift God has placed in me, and begin to understand it instead of what gifts has God given to the church for the common good, doesn't that then remove pride? Because it's no longer about me and the gift that I have. And doesn't that remove all sense of, of poor me, I, I'm, I'm kind of lost in the queue, I stood behind the door when gifts were being handed out and I got the left over. Doesn't that remove that sense of inferiority? And so we can, we can be, so, so, so the whole thing is right, it's for the common good. And, and we, can, we can then begin to look and say, great, Sue has a wonderful gift of playing piano, a wonderful gift of singing, but it's not that she has wonderful gifts, but that God has given wonderful gifts through her to the church. And did she not help us, enable us, in worshipping God this morning? Gifts given for the common good and the benefit of us all. So it's, it's not so much, I have a spiritual gift, what gift have I got? But the church has been given gifts by God for the benefit of the church. And you're the conduit. I hope that kind of makes some sense. Perhaps even change your view, your view a little bit on how you view gifts and what gifts you have. And, and perhaps move away from either pride or disappointment and to recognize that God gives good gifts for the benefit of the whole church. So number one, you're not gifted. Number two, they're all kind of ordinary. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 12 actually doesn't, it, it, it's, it's us and our English language that, that Makes things a little funny. He translates, you know, he tells us that we have, talks about spiritual gifts, but Paul actually just uses one word, 
and it's actually, you can translate it just now, about spirituals. It's a, it's a word charisma. Um, that's why we end up with charismatic. It means grace, about graces. Now let me tell you about the graces. And the graces are actually kind of ordinary. We almost want to separate them into the ordinary and the supernatural. Right? So we've got the ordinary gifts like the gift of administration and the gift of mercy. And the supernatural gifts like prophecy and knowledge and tongues and whatever else. But I wonder if it's strictly necessary to make that division. Because again what ends up happening is you hope to get one of the supernatural gifts and you end up getting just one of the very ordinary and so again, we end up with this, like this division. So let me launch myself into a minefield this morning. Let me talk about tongues for a moment. There are some who would say that the gift of tongues and the miraculous gifts no longer exist. That they've been removed by God because now we have the Bible, we don't need this bad spectacular stuff. The gifts, the spectacular gifts have ceased. And those guys call themselves cessationists because they've ceased. I don't find the arguments particularly compelling. But I do think that what we see in many churches today, I do begin to wonder, is that really the gift of tongues as Paul expresses it here? So, so here are a few thoughts. Tongues is an old English word used by the King James Version guys when they were translating the Bible. A couple hundred years ago, John Wesley, I think John Wesley, wrote a hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Great song, right? We should have sung it this morning. Sorry, Peter. Um, what he was asking for was not, oh, if I could only have one thousand of these pink quality things, uh, if I could have another 999 of them stuck in my mouth somehow, that I'm a, you know, some sort of alien thing that I could praise God with a thousand of them. That's not what he was asking for, right? I think we know what he was asking for. I mean, it's a bizarre image, isn't it? <laughs> uh, he was saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could praise God in 1,000 different languages? Alright, so praise the Lord. Who can say that in a different language for us? Who can say it in Afrikaans? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who can say it in German? Any Germans here? Praise the Lord. Come on, Rosby, give it to us, man. So the gift of tongues in our church is quite limited. <laughs> See, a foreign tongue is just an old English phrase meaning foreign language. And so when you read in Acts chapter 2 of the apostles running around and speaking in different languages that people could understand, maybe that was the gift of tongues that they received. Some of you have met Marnie the missionary. Marnie the missionary is a cool dude, we haven't seen him for a couple of years now. But Marnie the missionary works in Bible translation. And Marnie the missionary speaks English, Afrikaans, uh, fluently. English, Afrikaans, French, German, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Kosa, Zulu, Swahili. And the last time we checked, he was learning a Middle Eastern language of some sort, probably Farsi. Do you, want, do you think that he might have a gift of languages? And he's using his gift for the common good, for the benefit of the church. I have to say, yep, absolutely. Having said all that, I do think that there is room to understand Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians that there is an ecstatic language that no one understands. And I think that it is possible that that is the case. 
But in 1 Corinthians 14, he makes it very clear how that gift should be expressed. Where he says, if you're going to speak in an ecstatic language that no one understands, then don't speak it where people are around you. Because you're benefiting no one, only yourself. And he says the church gathering, the collective gathering, is for the benefit of everyone. So if everyone is here and you're having a wonderful time all by yourself, that is not for the benefit of the church. And Paul doesn't say, I'm going to forbid you from doing it. He says, go do it at home. Go do it by yourself. So, by all means, go home this afternoon, close the curtains, have a great time. But the, pe- the purpose and point of being together as God's people is that we collectively, um, for the ben- that is for the, for the collective good, for the benefit of, of all. What about prophecy? Isn't prophecy supernatural? Isn't that the ability to tell the future? I'd love to be able to tell the future. I'd love to have the gift of prophecy. I'd love to know what the lotto numbers are going to be this week. But that's a very poor, very weak understanding of what prophecy is. Prophecy is just simply communicating God's word to others. That's all it is. In a sense, I'm prophesying right now. And the fact that I prepared this on Thursday afternoon and Friday morning, does that make it less supernatural, what I'm doing? I think the point is that we all have different abilities to do different things. Some of us have an ability to do public speaking, and some of us don't, and shouldn't, and won't, even when they go to the head, right? Some of us have a natural ability to just welcome people, and to draw them in, and make them feel at home, and others should just never have people in their homes at all. Um, <laughs> you know who you are. Um, <laughs> some of us have big brains. Others just know how to put pieces of paper in a helpful order. How do we use, how will we use what we have? Will we use it for our own glory, our own benefit, our own honor? Or will we use what God has placed in us for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of the city, for the sake of His church, for the sake of His people? And to say this, right, I kind of implied it earlier, but if you do have the gift of administration, it doesn't mean that you have to be the church administrator as much as that is beneficial. Perhaps you get to join a running club and become the administrator of the running club and use your spiritual gift to build the kingdom there and to administer a godless running club in a way that glorifies Jesus. You do nails? Great. Then paint in tiny little letters. You're a sinner and you need Jesus. <laughs> That's not how you exercise the gift, no. Acknowledge this. You're not just doing nails. You're creating a safe space for ladies and maybe even some men. <laughs> I was going to say Kevin, but you're creating a safe place, place for the ladies to come and talk, and you're displaying the glory of God by beauty and creation and color. And I know that the gift of nail painting is not listed in one Corinthians twelve, but the gift of hospitality and mercy and encouragement all are, and that's all part of painting nails. So you see that it doesn't need to be super spiritual actions that define a spiritual gift. Although it might. 
And there may well be a miraculous healing of someone when you pray for them. But you don't have to, be, have to wait to be zapped from heaven to go, I have a spiritual gift. Just get out there and do what you do well. And do it to the glory of God. And to some extent we see that in the book of Nehemiah. Where people are just getting out and doing what needs to be done. They're getting out and building the wall. And it's all kinds of people, right? The goldsmith doesn't go, I don't do that, I don't need to go. No, you can go out and build the wall. And we read that there's a whole bunch of people who, who just built the wall that was in front of their house. They built the book that was there. It's, in a sense, there's a, there's a case for us to just say, just do the job that's in front of you. Too many people go, oh, I'm not quite sure what my spiritual gift is. I need to do a spiritual gift online questionnaire to discover what it is, and then I'm going to wait for that thing to appear, um, you know, so that I can... No, just do the job that's in front of you. Do what needs to be done. In fact, you don't need to go online and do a spiritual gifts assessment test. Just do stuff. You'll soon find out what it is that you're good at doing. Do the job that's in front of you. Pick up a brick. Build the wall. And thirdly, let me, let me say this. Pursue the gifts. Sorry, I got that all wrong. Just pursue the giver, not the gifts. Pursue the giver, not the gifts. We're not one of those churches, I don't think, that make a big deal about spiritual gifts. There's a recognition that we have spiritual gifts. Kind of what I'm doing now, we, we do have spiritual gifts, but it, we, don't, we don't do this whole thing. The important thing is the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. Paul tells us to even pursue or design the gifts. He, he tells us that. Uh, uh, at the end of chapter four, 13, he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And at the beginning of chapter 14, he says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. We should eagerly desire gifts. We should long for the gifts. We should eagerly pursue them and exercise them. John Calvin says this. He says, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. So it's not a case of ignore the gifts. It's pursue the gifts. We must. But as much as we are grateful for his good gifts, and as much as he is worshipped when we exercise his good gifts. Too often, in too many places, the attention falls on the gifts themselves and not the giver. And our pursuit is always of him and not just of what he will give. You love him for who he is, not just loving him for what he gives. And so, God asked the question, right? Are you eagerly pursuing Him? Do you eagerly desire Him? Is your longing for the Spirit of God to fill you? Is that your prayer? See, back in Nehemiah, I don't think that the intention of building the walls was just so that they could say, Hey, look at these nice walls. Their intention was the kingdom of God and his kingdom come. Their desire was that in building the city, God would be worshipped, God would be glorified. Their intention was that God would once again fill this place with his presence. They were doing more than just laying bricks and mixing daga. They were working for the kingdom and seeking him. 
You're doing so much more than just selling stuff and making clothes or writing books. You're building His kingdom. Let me finish this morning by speaking about the wall that Baruch built. Back in Nehemiah chapter 3, we read about a gentleman called Baruch in verse 20. Next to him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. He zealously repaired a section of the broken wall. Here's a guy who's not just building, he's zealously building. I don't know if that means that he put in overtime or if he skipped his coffee breaks. Apparently he who conveys a sense of, of to burn or to glow. Right? This is the this guy's a candle in the darkness. He is the energizer bunny of the chapter. He's not just putting in a shift and doing what needs to be done. He's eager and zealous and passionate about the task that is before him. And he is with zeal building a section of the wall. That's what God calls us to do and to be. They were to be passionate and zealous and eager to build the walls and assert the kingdom. And I know there's times when we get discouraged and when the hands hang them, but we'll read about that in the next couple of weeks. There are times when it's hard to be full of zeal for God and His kingdom. There are times when the work just seems overwhelming, but Baruch zealously repaired the section outside the high priest's house. I expect to see some of you outside my house. <laughs> I'm not your priest, I'm not your priest. How eager are we to get to work for the kingdom? How eager and zealous are we in the pursuit of the city of God? And I find that sometimes it's eager, also it's easy to be eager and zealous for Babylon to build the city of man, to get all excited about what I can acquire and what I can control and what I'll build, and to use the gifts and abilities that have been placed for me to build my empire and to build my kingdom and to build my little city, and that becomes the problem. It doesn't matter how big you think you're building it, it's always big enough just for one. And you end up walling yourself in, and you erect walls, and you keep people out, and you protect the horde that you've acquired. But we're to be zealous for the kingdom. Remember the words of Jesus, when quoted from the Psalms, how zeal for your house will consume me. What consumes me? What consumes you? What drives you forward? What fills your thoughts and dreams? What are your hopes and longings? A zeal for his house? For his city? For his kingdom? Consumed by him? This is the house that Jack built about 20 years ago. A band. Points you can tell me the name of the band after the service. A second song, The House That Jack Built. And one state, one point, the lyrics go along the lines of it swallows me. And then he, they talk about the higher you, the higher you are, the, the harder you fall. And the, 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 the meaning, the message behind that song, The House That Jack Built, is talking about Jack Daniels. The lead singer of the song has been into rehab multiple times. And the song is reflecting his dad's 
and how as much as he's swallowing the Jack Daniels, he's being swallowed by it. And the higher you get on a buzz, the higher you fall. And if you're going to build your house on Jack, you're going to be in trouble. So hey Jack, what house are you building? Is it a wobbly affair built of sticks? Is it a house built for one? Is it a few walls set up to mark your place? While you're consumed with anxiety, build your little kingdom of one? Hey Jack, what are you building? You're building the city of God? You zealously using your gifts, your abilities, and seeking his kingdom come? Laying bricks in the wall of the city of God, that place of refuge and safety that welcomes all comers, that forms and shapes marriages and families and lives and longings, that transforms society from the inside out. Hey Jack, Angel, what are you building? Let's pray. And Lord, may we build your kingdom. May we build your kingdom. May we reflect in our lives your kingdom. May we celebrate the graces given to us and use them for the glory of our God. Help us to move, to move away with him, to move away from the idea that we, we do church on Sunday and we build our own kingdom through the week, to move away from the idea that our job is just there to earn a little bit of money, and maybe if we get a nice opportunity to say something about Jesus somewhere, and to begin to see that our job day by day, week by week, is about the kingdom. And the way we conduct ourselves and the way that we work, that we're displaying a different culture, a different kingdom, a different world, a different reality. May we see the opportunities around us where the, the graces that you've placed in us can benefit others. May we seek to serve. May we find bricks at hand to build the walls. Not the walls of our own little empire to wall ourselves in and keep ourselves safe, but the walls of the kingdom. A place of refuge and safety and welcome and diversity and longing. A place that changes the world for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. We are singing closing, and since we've spoken about the graces, let's sing about His amazing grace again this morning.